Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. New restrictions may have come in, but for other reasons that will become rapidly apparent, we're doing this interview over the internet. I'm delighted to say that today's guest is designer Julia Lohman. I kind of like to bring myself to this limit of my own comfort zone because only there I find that I'm learning something and I'm pushing myself and I'm trying to understand something through the process. Julia first came to prominence after she graduated from the Royal College of Art in 2004 with a chandelier fashioned from 50 preserved sheep stomachs. She followed that up with a stool made by casting the inside of a dead calf and perhaps most famously with her cow bench, essentially a sculpture of a cow's body covered anatomically correctly with an entire hide. However, more recently, she's become known for her research into kelp, setting up the Department of Seaweed during a six-month residency at London's v in 2013. As one critic wrote, the objects she makes are powerful and unique, often challenging our responses to the materials and byproducts convention tells us to ignore. Julia is Professor of Contemporary Design at Aalto University, Finland, and directs her eponymous design practice from Helsinki. Julia, thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you, Grant, for inviting me. It's an honor. Um, You're in Finland nowadays. What are you doing there? Yes, so we moved to Finland two years ago when I was appointed as Professor of Contemporary Design at Aalto University for the master course Contemporary Design, which is all about materiality and critical engagement with materials, but also kind of very hands-on experimentation and artistic research into what materials we use and how we work with them. And how many students do you have, Julia? We have an intake of 24 students every year, and then they are yeah, studying completely in English, and they come from all over the world. We have about half of the students from Finland and the other half from countries spread around the globe coming to study with us. I mean, this podcast is defiantly not about the virus, but we can't really ignore it. Um, (laughs) What's the state of the pandemic in Finland at the moment? Well, we are actually in quite a good position here in Finland because there are so few people and social distancing comes rather natural to the Finnish uh, psyche. (laughs) So there is a lot of space and in a way it has affected us as well as everywhere else. So for example, my year starts tomorrow and it will start with a blended mix of online and offline activities. And we're going to go to the forest with the students on their first day and kind of immerse ourselves and try and make the best of the good weather outdoors while we still have it. What will you do in the forest? I'm intrigued. We plan for two activities. One will be forest yoga and the other one will be carving, but not carving to actually make something, but carving with a sculptor here from Finland, Jan Lud Johan. He's also a fellow German. He really sees the forest in the wood and he's going to talk about the value of wood and how we very often use it, not to its fullest capacity and not, you know, very often kind of you see these building sites with wooden claddings of concrete casting, huge wooden claddings basically, and the wood is just there in that place for, I don't know, a couple of days until the cast is done and then it's it's destroyed. So we're going to talk about that, about that inherent value of the forest and the trees. The entire project I'm running together with a colleague, Anna van der Leij, who graduated in Eindhoven, and it's called Materials and Living Systems. So we are really talking about materiality, but we're leading the students into the forest to understand this intricate web of life that we are interfering there when we make something and we want them to reflect on that role of the designer of interfering either in a positive or a negative way or you know just becoming more aware of where the things come from that we then make with and wood yoga is that different from another type of yoga or how does that work (laughs) i have a wonderful colleague who is professor of architecture and well-being and she had been running a free yoga class for colleagues in the morning until the lockdown basically so i just asked her to help us just really be in the forest. So I don't really quite know what exactly she will be doing, but it will be about being in that place with our bodies and really being there, really landing in the forest and, you know, getting our brain and body in one place, basically. It's quite an intriguing place, Finland, because, I mean, it's one of the few kind of Western societies that actually introduced prohibition at one stage, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Finns have a strange relationship with drinking. I think it's partly due to being very quiet and not really letting go or letting kind of their face down 
I don't know how you say this in English, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and then when they drink or when they do sauna, I guess that's the release. I think sauna is more important there than drinking, though. Sauna is quite special. Okay, yeah, good to know. Well, look, I feel like we're digressing, <laughs> although I'm intrigued. But we're really here to talk about seaweed and I guess kelp in particular. You've been experimenting with it for a while. But I suspect the vast majority of people became aware of your interest in it when you did a residency entitled the Department of Seaweed at the V&A in London, as we discussed in 2013. Where did this interest in seaweed begin? In 2007, I applied for a residency in Japan. And residencies are wonderful to kind of get your head out of the day-to-day runnings of your studio and really into the depth of a project without the daily distractions. So... Back then, my cow benches had been on show in Tokyo, and I had gone to the fish market there, Tsukiji Fish Market, and I was so inspired by all these forms and shapes of the animals we pull out of the sea on a daily basis. This intrigue made me ask lots of questions of, like, is that sustainable? Can we really pull out that much? And what are all these organisms that I see? So basically, I wanted to go and investigate man and marine life in Japan and give myself three months to just be there. And when we were on the fish market, I saw the seaweed because I I don't come from Japan. I immediately thought, oh my God, there is this craft of seaweed artifacts that I'm totally unaware of because I imagined this. I saw how leather-like it was and I imagined there would be this world that you can make all kinds of things from seaweed. And when my host said, oh no, we're just eating it. We've been eating it for thousands of years. I thought, okay, then... Maybe this is my task to make what I just imagined. And here I am still working on that. Yeah, yeah. Because what are its properties in that case? Well, it basically, I mean, the properties, you can describe them in many ways. The properties of the blade are actually, it's 30 centimeters wide. It grows six meters long in one year. And while it does, it cleans the ocean of um, excess nutrients that really cause all these um, unwanted algal blooms and really um, imbalance the ecosystem and so forth. It's a community builder. It's really helping other organisms to grow within its vicinity so it can give shelter to the fish and so forth. So these are the properties that fascinated me, this idea that we can actually take something and by promoting its growth and promoting how it's grown and where it's grown, we can improve the ecosystem we are interfering with. And then when we take it, Um, I thought, you know, I've worked with leather before and I've worked with textiles before and I know how much damage these industries can do and how much labor and how much chemicals, quite frankly, go into producing a piece of leather, for example, or can go into unless you do it in this very ecologically friendly way. So the idea that we can pull something, a piece of leather-like material out of the ocean and that it's just had a positive ecological impact until that moment and then to use it with the same spirit and same mindset uh, onwards was just really fascinating. It was very intriguing that there would be this craft that I imagined there to be, but that wasn't there. So in a way, it's also almost inventing or kind of uncovering a craft that could be there and could have been there all this time, but that somehow did not get developed. Yeah, because so you started looking at it in 2007, but I'm intrigued because really you got into your stride with it, I guess, in 2013. I mean, you had been in the Jerwood Makers Prize, but 2013 you did this residency, Department of Seaweed. How did that work at the V&A? The Jerwood Makers, I tried to work with bryozoa, which are also marine organisms, but not seaweed. And um, then I realized that it takes a, a long time to actually develop this craft and develop material knowledge around the material where there's not much known how to work with it yet. So I got um, the Stanley Picker Research Fellowship in Kingston. And that gave me, that bought me like a year of really looking into working with the seaweed. But then I realized it needs even more time. And I signed up or kind of um, applied for a PhD between the Royal College of Art and the Victorian Albert Museum. So it was a collaborative doctoral award then between design products and the VNA. And as part of this PhD, I had the absolute fortune to have a residency in the VNA for half a year. And when we were planning it with my supervisors, I explained what I wanted to do. And I explained, you know, seaweed is as important as these other materials that have or have had their departments at the VNA, you know, like textile, silverware, ceramics, glass, and so forth. So my supervisor said, oh, so you want a department of seaweed then? And I was like, exactly, this is what I want. (laughs) (laughs) 
and that's how it came about. And the fascinating thing about the Department of Seaweed was that, or is, that it's both hypothetical, but also very real. So when people came to the Department of Seaweed at the VNA, they would stand in it and they would smell the seaweed and see all these things being made. And they would be like, oh, I didn't know there was a Department of Seaweed here. And I'd say, yes, welcome. You're standing right in it. And I'm the head of the department. Can I show you around? <laughs> the, the VNA gave us such a credibility in a way yeah. that we could propose this hypothetical, what if seaweed is as important as silverware? It was just built. That was just in that room. It was suggesting that this is the case and now let's think together what that could mean and how we can avoid making the same mistakes with seaweed that we made with so many other of the materials we work with yeah yeah i mean you had very specific ideas as to how the department would work though it was going to be about co-design about collaboration non-hierarchical seems to pop up quite a lot yes i mean there's always a bit of a hierarchy but basically it was about sharing some of the knowledge around how to work with the material rather than being in competition with each other to realize that as long as you are having or sharing the same values as to why you want to work with it you are actually better off trying to share some of the knowledge and try it in different pathways to reach that future, basically. So the whole idea is that it's not my clearly authored speculation, but it was an invitation into other people to come in and to speculate with me and to start building this seaweed future with me together. And you, you had something like 2,500 visitors, I believe, including people like the basket maker Mary Butcher, people like Tom Dixon and Daniel Charney, who have both been on this podcast. What did everybody bring to the mix? It was unbelievable. It was a fantastic half-year ride there where we had lots of conversations. The idea was to not share a finished product, as is often done in a museum, where you put something out there and... It's basically already congealed knowledge into the known, basically. It's, it's an object that... <laughs> I love that expression, congealed knowledge. I've never come across that before, but I'm, I'm going to use that. <laughs> so basically, in an object, I feel that an object is knowledge that has hardened into a perfect form. So when you see it, you're learning from it. You're thinking almost into the past, into this whole idea of why was it made and how was it made and what can I learn from it? But it's not in flux anymore. Whereas if you are dealing with this hypothetical space of what future could we have when we are using seaweed, then it's much better to have all of this still in flux so that you can almost, that you're creating a lens through which everyone can imagine their own angle of that future. But then the lens is not enough because you, of course, have to have this dialogue. So people would come to the Department of Seaweed and they would look from their perspective and they might be triggered by the sewing machine that was like their grandmother's or by the smell of the seaweed, triggered to share some of the stories and some of the angle that they come to the material with. And some of the things were quite literal. So people would take home a little bit of seaweed and test the embroidery methods on it and send me back like a report or a picture of like, hey, this is this worked, this hasn't worked. And other things were more conceptual that they would say, it really reminds me in shape of, um, you know, Jean Bonticou or, you know, some artist or they would tell me a story about being on the beach in Cornwall when they were children and so forth. So it was a space of making that encouraged a common dialogue. Mm. And how has the department changed over time? I mean, I was intrigued. I was reading your PhD yesterday I was interested to see that you now have a kind of legal framework. You had issues with IP, I think, at one point when you're in the VNA. Yes. I mean, it depends. We still have issues with IP or we don't have them. It depends whether we are becoming conscious of them. But it's, of course, a question, how much do you share and what do you share? And what does it prevent you from doing if you share openly? But we've come to the conclusion that it's most important to share the values, basically. And once that is the place, once you're not kind of just wanting the next new thing, but actually caring for the environmental impact, for how the seaweed is grown, for how it's harvested, for telling part of that story and fixing some of these imbalances, then it becomes quite easy to share. But it's quite person-to-person -person sharing. It's not kind of a blanket spreading the knowledge to everybody because we're a bit worried that if now everyone just starts kind of harvesting seaweed and not caring how to harvest it and not caring where it comes from, that it causes more problems than solves any. So it's still in flux, this system. We kind of made a non-for-profit organization in Germany. But again, this feels a bit strange because it shouldn't be located in Germany when our members are 
everywhere. They're spread all around. So it's it would make more sense to find another legal framework, I think, for it. So you, we're still in flux there. We're still in flux there. One of the things you did definitely create was this really extraordinary sculpture that I guess was the kind of crescendo of your activity at the V&A. Could you describe for the listeners what it looked like and how you came up with that? Yes. Yeah, so what we made in the V&A was the Okinaga node. And it's a large sculpture that will go on show in the MoMA in October or November, I believe, this year, 2020. And it's basically a very large sculpture that is not a seaweed floor. <laughs> so I wanted the Department of Seaweed to, <laughs> to spread out into the VNA at the end of the residency. And there were different options and different locations in the VNA we could inhabit. And my first idea was, oh, let's make a seaweed floor. It's going to be beautiful. It's like a wooden parquet, but entirely out of seaweed. And then I thought, actually, that's a really terrible idea because, yes, we could make it, but it would mean taking the voice and taking kind of the ability of the seaweed to talk about itself almost entirely from it. It would mean pressing the seaweed onto boards that are not of seaweed, lacquering it, protecting it from the visitor, and then making it into something almost invisible that doesn't allow it to sing its beautiful kind of song, you know, show what it can do as seaweed. So I then thought, okay, what object would do that? And I decided to make an object that is very vocal about its material properties and quite kind of undefined in function. Because if people see a seaweed chair, say, there is always a risk and they say, oh, cool, you can make chairs out of seaweed and then pass, pass by. So the idea is that there is a full stop. Oh, somebody made a chair out of seaweed. Okay, that's it. I stopped thinking. But if we are using the seaweed in a very evocative way where the material can speak a lot about its own properties, but there is no clear function, then people might see this and think, yes, okay, but this is quite a useless object they made. What else could we make? And that's the question we wanted them to phrase. Mm. So we made a piece in the end where each piece of seaweed is between two rods of rattan. And the rattan is thin enough for the seaweed to shrink and to pull it into its own form. So it's basically a form that on the macro level, I decided, together with thinking what the seaweed affords, you know, what width it has, what length it has, and so forth. But on the micro level, all the convex forms were pulled in by the seaweed in the drying process. So it really gives you a gut feeling of the strength of the material when I look at the form. I mean, it's seven years since that was launched. And as you say, it's going to MoMA shortly. But I'm wondering, as a result of seeing it, have people created things from seaweed that otherwise they wouldn't have? Yes, I mean, there are a lot of uh, seaweed artifacts and objects out there nowadays. And I get emails, maybe not daily, but weekly about people wanting to work with seaweed and trying to figure out how to do it and what to do. And then either completely connecting with the Department of Seaweed or doing their own thing. There's um, Violaine Bouet-Cumbera. She is part of the Department of Seaweed. And she makes amazing, beautiful textiles, like woven fabrics basically, but not fabrics entirely out of seaweed. Then there's a seaweed girl from Denmark who is looking at eel grass, like old thatching techniques, but making panels out of it. And there have been quite a lot of people really creating sculptures and um, objects from it as well. Yeah, since then, also for the Department of Seaweed and for me, there's been a lot of further material research and other objects we've been building and making. And how does it age? Because I'm led to believe that it changes colour over time. It develops a pattern, I guess. Has the sculpture aged well? It has aged quite well, but of course not like plastic. Well, actually, plastic is probably the most difficult material to conserve. So it has aged better than plastic, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> because basically the seaweed has chlorophyll and that gives it its green color. So within the first couple of weeks, the dark green sculpture becomes lighter in color and very light yellow basically and then it just stays the same it becomes a little bit more fragile over time i would say because the way i treat it is um kind of means it always takes the moisture from the air and it's reactive a bit like parchment would be i guess so now it's eight years old and that piece has been exhibited in four different countries and it's a very large structure. So when you see a picture of it, lots of people say, oh my God, you can even take it down. It's not permanent somewhere. So yes, we've taken it down. We've put it back up and some of the pieces we had to repair, but 
It's still intact. It's still working. Because when you see photos of kelp, it immediately looks, well, as you said, it kind of looks leathery, but it doesn't behave like leather. And that was almost your starting point, the fact that it doesn't behave like leather, right? It depends on how you treat it. There are many riddles with this material because it's very reactive. So the Victorians, for example, they hung seaweed in front of their beach houses to see how moist the air was and whether there was a change coming or not because it was so hydrophil and so reactive to its surrounding. So it depends on what you do with it. It can be, of course, often it's ground to its components to use the alginate, for example, to then make a bioplastic or like a material that's more predictable. And I think that, for example, is, makes total sense with many pieces of the seaweed, especially if you are collecting beach cast, for example, there might be you know, not the beautiful big sheets that I'm working with, but actually like just raw seaweed that needs to be taken off the beach and that needs to be processed. I think there are good milling techniques and techniques to grind it down and have a papier-mâché like material or a plastic like material from it. I've been fascinated in keeping that structure intact and in seeing what I can do with it and whether I can work with it to make it work like a leather. And that's, I think, a little bit the holy grail because I haven't sussed it out. I can make these beautiful structures with it, but I'm not there yet for creating, for example, a real replacement for shoes or bags or these kind of things. Right. You did make a hat. A hat was made from it, right? Yes. I mean, all these wearables are possible. You know, amazing costumes are possible. You know, we made these collars because when we were in the V&A, the David Bowie exhibition was on. So there was a lot of inspiration in really constructed, beautiful wearable textiles for masks and hats and collars but it's more of this you know stage wearables this is totally doable but not day-to-day and should go into the washing machine with 60 degree well not yet i think there are some companies actually alginit and so forth that then go down to the yarn and make a yarn that's almost entirely made of algae and then that goes into textiles so i think it depends on how much you break down the material and go into the microsphere before going back into objects. Mm. It was fascinating that the project, the Department of Seaweed at the V&A, was materially based, obviously, but it seems to go beyond that and into the role a museum plays in our lives. Was that always the intention? It was, yes. And it was quite interesting because the whole premise of the PhD was to see how critical contemporary design practices can enter the museum. And I think one of the most fascinating insights I had there was that maybe the museum is more interesting as a place for communication and to kind of build communities rather than dissemination. So maybe the museum should be the place where we are debating and where we are bringing all kinds of knowledge together to think about what futures we want and that to try and implement them rather than just seeing it as a place where I can showcase my work, basically. So that was the idea that we wanted to test how a museum could be a place for future making. And I mean, my work is very influenced by the whole idea of speculative design and critical design, but equally influenced by transition design methods and by actually not just imagining the future we would like to reach, but by trying to actually build a community we need to reach that future. Because I think there's so much we have to change in the way we're doing things that it's not enough if everyone just sits there and tries by themselves and hides away their knowledge in a drawer. We need to find ways of getting together and building on each other's knowledge and collaborating to actually know what's the right way because quite often the answers to that will not lay within craft or within design the answers to what might be the right way become clear when you're conversing with I don't know an ecologist for example or a material scientist who tells you what changes you can make in the molecular structure and what you can't and what you shouldn't and so forth. Yeah, so because you've just written a piece about this, I was reading the other day on social media, where you see the role of the designer in the future as rather than designing, I think you described it, posters and toasters, <laughs> uh, which I quite liked, but as a link between these various different disciplines. Yes, the posters and toasters is not by me, sadly. I love it as well. <laughs> I heard it from Terry Irwin for the first time, and she already said, yeah, you don't know this, you haven't heard this. Um, yes, exactly. So I see designers as capable of being the bridge builders between these different disciplines. And basically, a designer is somebody who goes into a new context, who learns how to navigate a new context, who learns not to be afraid of asking silly outsider questions, very much like a journalist, I guess, as well in this, but then to also translate that, what he learns or she learns 
into action, into kind of, okay, what can I do with this? What do I need to connect this with? How can it become relevant in an actionable context? And I think as such, if we understand a designer to be capable of doing that, then we can get them into design projects that are much more than shape giving, you know, than shape making. It's much more into as a flux between different elements that need to come together to make something happen. Right. And so this is your definition of transition design. Yeah, it's one of them. I think transition design and speculative design share this long horizon thinking, this imagining a future and then imagining how we would get there. Only the difference being that transition design is trying to actually imagine a future that is worth getting to and step by step building, thinking of backcasting of how we could get there. Whereas not everything, but some pieces of speculative design are rather showing us danger fields or showing us areas of the future where we should really question whether we want to go there and raising that question of making us more aware of the track we're on, for example, or of the tracks we could be on if we are continuing it with business as usual. An interesting one, Julia, I was going to talk to you about because there's an interview I read that you did with Icon a number of years ago now where you were attached to a lie detector. And I think the interviewer, who was uh, Justin McGurk, who's now the chief curator at the Design Museum, asked you whether you're a designer or an artist. And in response, you apparently hesitated for a long time and said you didn't know, which the lie detector said was true. And it seems to me, reading about your work now, that you've nailed your colours to the mast as this transitional speculative designer. Was there a moment where you decided, yes, this is what I am, in fact? Well, no, there wasn't. Well, there were lots of moments where I decided, no, I cannot leave this because this is so important. It's so important to put design in service of society, of ecology, of the things that really matter. Design is far too powerful an engine a driver of where we're at to just leave this and kind of keep it in, you know, the territory of what's the next new thing, what's the next big seller, basically. So in a way, it was always more interesting to me to try and broaden what design can do rather than leave into another sphere. And I also think, I mean, I've met, I'm working with great artists and there are fantastic artists that especially in this field of ecological design or socially engaged uh, uh, art or socially engaged art, there is a lot of um, overlap with art and design in these fields, I think. But the overlap, I think, is generated through the empathy, through this reaching out at another and trying to understand it and trying to give it a voice or trying to make, you know, show its relevance and trying to connect outside of you. And I think... That is inherent to design, and it's not necessarily the case for all art. It's for some art. Maybe it's not for all design either. Maybe I'm being idealistic about design. There's a lot of really bad design around as well that doesn't seem to do this terribly well. (laughs) There's another quote which I found which I was quite interested in, in a quote you gave to Crafts in 2009, where you said the biggest difference between me and craftspeople is that I work with so many materials that I could never build the knowledge you build over all those years. Do you still feel that way? You've been working with seaweed for, what, 13 plus years now, I wonder. Does that change your attitude to what you are? (laughs) Well, that was probably at the beginning when I found the seaweed that I said this. I feel very cheeky because (laughs) it's nice. If you pick a material where nobody else has 10,000 hours of knowledge to work with, it's quite easy to be the best very mm. quickly because, <laughs> because you're the only one. <laughs> and it gives you this freedom. I still feel that I'm too impatient. I would be too impatient to follow in tracks about what is right about something for an awful long time before being able to do my own thing, which I think would be the case if I worked with a better known material, because there's so much knowledge you have to, first of all, soak up before you can become virtuous and and invent yourself. And I think it's no coincidence that I jumped on working with seaweed, where I could almost mix and match that knowledge and make like appropriate some of the knowledge we built around other material kind of canons and material techniques. And that to me seemed like a wonderful 
way of using some of the knowledge that's already there, but then almost assembling it in another way and seeing where it makes sense. Yeah, so the fact that it didn't have a cultural history or any, well, baggage, I guess, was important to you. Yeah, it has some, actually. It has quite a lot, but a lot of it is not written and forgotten. So, for example, Aborigines um, used to make their water carriers out of the wonderful bull cape they, they have there. Yeah, yeah, it's one in the British Museum. Yes, exactly. Uh, they don't know. I think they think it might be a model of one, or it might be one. It's very small. It's more like a cup size piece. So there is some knowledge around it, yes, but not not as much as, for example, around wood or around leather, where there is so much to learn before you can even, you know, start doing the most simple thing. I guess it's the same for seaweed. There is so much to learn, but it's a process of discovery of almost teaching yourself rather than learning from someone else and then connecting the techniques that we have around other materials and seeing what makes sense to do with seaweed. You've written that your starting point for a piece is usually a dissonance or, and I'm going to quote, an emotional reaction at odds with what I think I know about a given situation. Can we unpick that? What does that mean? Well, I mean, I think I said this about Sheep stomachs. I could talk about sheep stomachs. I think I can also make the connection with seaweed. Uh, I think with seaweed, it was simply a value judgment, simply kind of seeing the possibilities of that piece of seaweed, thinking, this is leather. Why don't we use it as leather? And then hearing, oh, we don't use it and so forth. And then trying to make it usable as such and trying to put it into that kind of make it fulfill that promise or that moment of you know possibility that seemed to open up with a sheep stomach it was quite deliberate because i investigated there a material concept i made these lamps as you mentioned in the beginning um, a ceiling made of 50 sheep stomachs called flock and individual lamps made of one sheep stomach and there it was my own process of discovery that led me there i worked at a horse and sheep farm in iceland before Starting my master at the RCA, and I always kind of was felt very close to animals, but yet here we were kind of using leather, using all these kind of materials, and I wanted to unpick our role in using materials that come from nature. And the sheep stomachs are so fascinating because they are beautiful in structure, really gorgeous. But then when you hear it's a sheep stomach, you have this moment of disgust that comes from an alienation of that specific part of the animal because we don't want to see it we don't want to be reminded of it we don't maybe don't like the taste we don't like the smell and i just like this moment of rupture that then makes the audience of that sheep stomach or the person who holds it or who sees it question their own values like hang on i just liked this a minute ago now i don't like it anymore i think it's disgusting which of the two sides is the truth or my own truth mm. and I mean, for me, it's it very often is a process of my own discovery of kind of pushing myself to a moment when I feel uncomfortable about something and then questioning why I am uncomfortable. And quite often that moment of discord is not because of my own inner feelings, but maybe because of something I was taught or of something external. And Can I ask how we, we get to that moment of rupture and get into your background a little bit? You were brought up in Hildesheim in Lower Saxony, what did your parents do? Well, my dad was an art craft teacher. So he was kind of always seeing the beauty in everything. We would always, in the holidays, go with a caravan or go to some places and, for example, kind of collect some flotsam. And, and for his birthday, I would go to the forest and find an especially nice route for him to build a sculpture from or these kind of things. <laughs> so he kind of taught me how to see forms and how to see a beauty in things that are maybe discarded. My mom, on the other hand, well, she trained as a kindergarten teacher, but she was taking care of us. She was not really working as such. But I think what I have from her is that she involves everyone in conversation. And it doesn't matter who sits next to her on the bus, whether it's, you know, a drunken person or the mayor, they will be involved in the same kind of conversation. No, no distinction made. And from her, I have this very direct, very empathic kind of trying to figure out something, but giving that other person or that other situation its own sphere as well as own angle, allowing it to have its own voice somehow, I think. And I, my childhood was very much playing in the forest, like after school, going and playing there. And in a way that has stayed with me. Now we kind of 
just left our city flat in Helsinki and bought a house next to a big rock with forest behind the house. So <laughs> we are very happily back in nature now. You left Germany to study communication design at Surrey Institute of Art and Design in 98. So why come to England? Why do graphics, I suppose, essentially? My brother is 12 years older than me, and he became a designer slash artist. He's uh, working in Hanover, and he's building islands out of recycling materials and really working at a similar threshold than I am. Uh, so that really fascinated me. And then I realized I started studying graphic design in, in Hildesheim. I don't know why graphic design now and retrospectively, but I always thought that I was never interested in, in doing product design at this stage. I kind of always thought that graphics are, are very interesting because I like drawing and so forth. And then after about a year of my studies, I realized I made a mistake of staying in my small town and of not having seen anything of the world and of not kind of having any richness out of which to create something because I didn't feel I had anything to say. And then I luckily had glenangular fever. That gave me a breather because I couldn't go snowboarding with my friends. <laughs> and as the doctor only said, I can't go snowboarding, I was like, great, so now I can make my new portfolio and fly to London to apply to because I had that thought because somebody told me that somebody's sister was studying in London and suddenly I was like, oh, great. Yes, I could go abroad. I speak English and I can go there. And that's how it all started. I flew to London, applied. I got into the Surrey Institute of Art and Design. And it was really an eye-opener to live in another country. Once you do that, you realize you can go anywhere and you realize what wonderful freedom we have to be able to go to places just to travel or to do internships or to live there. I mean, wonderful. And once you're going, once you're leaving your own context, you suddenly see your own context for the first time. You understand what's German about you and what's not and what's you yourself. And you start questioning these contexts. You start trying to get a distance of what you are and what you are feeling was true to that and what's maybe the context implying you should feel. And I think that's one of these dissonances. I'm intrigued now, Julia. What's German about you? <laughs> well, it, certainly my designer identity is not German. It's international British. It's like it's completely formed by um, the the inquisitiveness I learned on my bachelor, on my master, this kind of can-do attitude, asking questions in this very cheeky kind way, and then opening doors, knocking and going in at the same time, basically. <laughs> we learned kind of how to, maybe it's not just the British way, but maybe it's also being a foreigner because it's wonderful being a foreigner. Not all the time, but most of the time, your uh, foreign accent overrides class accents. So you are German first and foremost. So you're becoming illegible a little bit. And then also you can pretend to not have known the rules. So you have a bit of leeway to kind of, you know, go your own way sometimes. When you're behaving strange, suddenly it's not you being strange, but they're like, oh, you Germans are so strange. And you're like, yes, me and 80 million strange people. This is how we do it. <laughs> and you, you can hide within that. And it's really liberating somehow. Yes. So when I came back to Germany, for example, I realized that the language in Germany is used very, very differently. So language in the UK, maybe especially by internationals in London, is used like watercolor paint. So you put a word here, you put a word there, as if you dab colors on a watercolor painting. And then the intonation really makes the image. It's like, how do you say things? How do you say interesting? How do you say nice? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not in the words, it's in the intonation. And German very often is used like Rotring um, marker pen. So when I came back to Germany, I had left it when I was 19 as a student, and I came back as a professor uh, in 2011, so 14 years later. And I had to teach in, in German. And people would not feel strange about when I say something about saying, oh, yes, but wouldn't there be a slightly better term to use there? And I was like, wow, what an odd thing to say. You, would, you, know, you wouldn't say this in the UK. You would, I don't know. It, it was very perfectionist, very much like... Um, precision. 
Yeah, precision, like being precise with your terminology. And you can tell that this is not really what I am. <laughs> yeah. And then there is another thing that I really loved, and I definitely learned it in the UK. And it is this agreeing to disagree. In Germany, if I have an opinion and you have an opinion, then we can discuss until morning about who's right, because quite clearly there is a right and a wrong. And if I'm right, you can't be. And therefore we keep discussing. And in the UK, what I discovered was this amazing willingness and ability when you are in a conversation to try and see this object that you're discussing from two different perspectives and to then think if somebody else sees it differently to then engage the other in a conversation to try and understand that object better because quite clearly they see it from another angle and that angle is valuable to understand this object better because there's more than one side to everything. And I love that there and I really hope that this is remaining in the culture and not being deteriorated now in this maelstrom of change we had in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think slowly that nuance and consensus is getting a bit lost in our culture, sadly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, coming back to you, Julia, because you ended up doing this project at Tate Modern as you were leaving Surrey with maggots. What was that about and why did you decide to use maggots? <laughs> People now would be like, what? I have to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, that was a very early project. There was at the end of my bachelor degree at the Surrey Institute of Art and Design. I was always maybe more interested in the content that was being transported through design rather than the design itself. So I always saw design as a vehicle to transport content. But then the content interested me and wanted to create the content myself, I guess. So we had the leeway to write our own brief in the last project of the bachelor and it was yeah three month project and I remember writing a brief that is enough to give me guidance but not pinning me down on what I'm actually going to do so I wrote that I would investigate growth and decay for a month and have lots of experiments and then bring them into graphical form the maggots were the second thing I got. First, I put some potatoes in some tights and let them hung them in windows to let them grow and decay the tights around them. But then I thought, what is the smallest kind of common denominator? What is the smallest thing that unifies um, growth and decay? And I thought of the maggot because it grows by decaying something. So I went to a bait shop, bought a pint of maggots, and then having these maggots in, in the fridge, I was like, whoa, whoa, God, I have a pint of maggot in my fridge. What do I do with it now? <laughs> so I kind of like to bring myself to this limit of my own comfort zone because only there I find that I'm learning something and I'm pushing myself and I'm trying to understand something through the process. We started, and we, this is my now husband, back then boyfriend, <laughs> we started putting the maggots onto piece of paper and seeing kind of how what how they crawl and so forth and then realizing that they make really beautiful lines if you just put a bit of ink underneath them and at that time Gero had just graduated from the Surrey Institute in graphic design and printmaking and so forth so it was very hard to get a job. And Gero is actually from your hometown? Uh, no nearby. You met at Surrey but you actually lived yeah nearby, nearby. but he okay. also went to the school uh, for half a year or for a year uh, in Hildesheim, but we didn't meet there. We met um, then, yeah, in the UK. But everyone kept telling him that he should have an exhibition and that he should go out and show his work and so forth. And it was really hard because all the job ads wanted web designers and they all wanted somebody with two years experience anyway that preferably was unpaid as an intern somewhere, I guess. But <laughs> so we, we then were visiting the Tate Modern and then we thought, Ah, oh, so exhibition, yeah. Let's have one. Let's have one here. Because there was this room, the East Room, on the top floor of the Tate Modern, that we realized was open and it didn't have any artwork, it didn't have any CCTV cameras, it didn't have any invigilation or anything, but lots of visitors coming up there to the restaurant and enjoying the view. So then we are like, great, so let's, let's curate an exhibition of the maggot artwork with the artists present. And so we went there on one Friday late and we went to the toilet and strung up all the maggot artworks that they had made with their beautiful trails onto 
a rope and we hung it up between two poles and had two chairs and a portfolio and a box of maggots in front of that. And then when people came in, we said, good evening, we're outraged. We're holding this exhibition here and we're just about to start an artist interview with a maggot. Would you like to come near and participate? So we put a maggot on a piece of paper and would read out the question to it and it would answer via ink trail. And it was unbelievably interesting because people in the beginning didn't even want to step close to the table. But then once we asked the maggot whether it considers itself male or female at this stage and what its name was and whether it was looking forward to becoming a fly, people came closer and closer. And in the end, we always got these, but what happens with Bill now? You're not going to kill him, are you? (laughs) So it became an exercise in trying to manipulate the context in which we see things and the value context and trying to see whether through an enactment, through a performance, we could make this perceived to be most disgusting of all animals acceptable just by reframing it and by sculpting that frame in which you experience that maggot. And yes, it worked and it was quite amazing. And then in the end, as I had promised to my graphic design tutors, I was putting this into graphical form and I made a book of the maggot experiences and I made all these posters and I also tried to breed maggots of the color of the Union Jack in blue, white and red to make a flag, like a video piece where you see the flag moving and then you zoom in and you see it's actually all these maggots, but all the flies died on the food colored meat. So I just had a poster in the end. But then you went and did product design at the Royal College of Art. So you'd obviously had a bit of a shift of interest away from doing these graphics to presumably your interest was to create products. Never really. That was not my first interest. My interest was to be more virtuous in ways of engaging in the topics I was interested in and to not just be able to engage with 2D, but to go into 3D. And back when I applied at the RCA, I wasn't sure whether I dared to go into product design, into design products um, that was run by Ron, Ron Arag then, because I had not built a single three-dimensional thing. I had won EF Design Product Award, but it was for a bottle carrier that was almost 2D. It was like a 2D bottle carrier that was folded into 3D. So, it, so I was very much in two-dimensional land still. And then... I applied to both courses and in my portfolio there was this and then there was a DNAD award I had won for a layout of a kitchen bin, but there was simply the drawings of it. I had never built anything in 3D. And then they said, oh, there's very many products in your portfolio. Why don't you go to product design? And and I said um, that for me, these were different vehicles and I didn't really abide to these kind of yeah groups. So anyway, I, I got an offer and design products. I didn't get one in communication design, because I think I was too all over the place for them. (laughs) And Ron Arad really liked, he looked at the concepts. He didn't care whether you do music or medicine. If you had really good concepts and really good ideas, he would take you in for that, basically. Yeah, yeah. When did the work with Sheep Stomach start? It started at the RCA. It started... um, Basically, after my bachelor, I was offered a job at Pentagram because I had all these posters and I, you know, it was a very visual um, student show I had and I got a prize there and somehow had some really good job offers. But I was going to start at Pentagram on 1st of October 2001. And then, of course, uh, I spent the summer in the US uh, traveling with Giro and the World Trade Center came down and uh, 9-11 happened and all the jobs were frozen. There was nothing there. So a week before I was um, supposed to start at Pentagram, I got a call saying that they have a problem with my starting date and that basically turned out into my job had evaporated. There just simply were no projects anymore for me to do. I got a call from um, an advertising newspaper and they said they would do an interview with me if I said I wanted to go into advertising, which was never really the plan. I always had these prejudices. And then um, I said yes, of course, because I didn't have any other job and there were no jobs around. So they interviewed me and uh, asked me who I would like to work with. And I said the name of one company that I knew. And then they called me that company and said, so do you want to start? Do you want to have a place in this think tank that we built? I kind of knew very quickly that this is not my thing because one client came in in the beginning. I think it was actually the first day 
and said, every British child eats two packs of crisps a day. However, we know that every American child eats an average of four packs of crisps a day. That's your job. And I thought, that's not my job. No, I can't do this. So I stayed there for half a year and I mentally switched off a little bit. I was there, I was going there and so forth. I made my portfolio at the RCA, I applied. So that was good. And then I was at that time working as a riding instructor in Hyde Parks on Sundays. So I would start going at work to these horse websites and, you know, really digressing. <laughs> and then I found a horse website that said, we're looking for somebody to come and work on our horse and sheep farm in Iceland. And I wrote an email saying, yes, I'm coming. Can I apply? This is me. And they offered me this uh, job at the horse and sheep farm. And at that time, I was already accepted at the RCA. So I was like, great, I'm going to get out of here for a couple of months and then return. And yes, it was really funny when I quit. Somebody actually said, oh, where are you going? And I said, oh, to Iceland. And I said, oh, who holds that account? <laughs> I have no idea who holds that account, but I'm going to the country to work on a horse farm. And it was actually the perfect antidote. And I realized our role in, you know, if we want to eat meat, for example, then the most ethical way is to actually help give birth to the sheep and round them up after a wonderful summer and the, on the island. And it was just so immediate, this whole connection to where our meat comes from and how we are connected to this ecosystem that it became very apparent to me when I returned to the UK how disconnected it all is. And I just started making this a topic for my work, basically. Yeah, so reconnecting us to the things that we eat, but also the things that we wear and the things that we sit on. Mm -hmm. There's a nice quote from you where you say, there's no reason to eat the muscle of an animal and wear the skin of an animal and then discard the stomach and say it's disgusting. But not everybody understood that and what you were trying to say. The Lasting Void, which was done after you left the Royal College, which was a stool made from casting the inside of a dead calf, managed to upset Alessandro Mendini, for instance, uh, when you were in a show together, Gallery Creo, in 2007. He wrote an open letter where he said, I do not understand what so much unpleasantness is supposed to demonstrate. And he called the idea cynical and pointless. I mean, did you enjoy rattling the cages of the old guard, I wonder? <laughs> no, I didn't enjoy it in the first place. I was totally shocked. I came to Galerie Criot in Paris to the show opening, and I had my galleries there very excited. He was like, oh my God, look at this letter that I received. And it was a letter in French. And then I had a journalist wanting to interview me in French for Figaro or something about it. And I said, sorry, no, but... This letter was clearly crafted with a lot of time and I'm going to take as much time to craft a response and then we can speak about it, which was <laughs> very good because I would have otherwise stumbled you know, across my French language and been drawn into a really stupid yeah. response. But it then actually turned out to be a real blessing because it made me realize the importance of decoding your work and connecting it back into language really almost discovering something in the making that is then encapsulated into an object, but that object doesn't really become as legible, perhaps, as it could be if you are retranslating that into the written word, basically. So we really crafted a response to Mandini. And I say we, because it was very much my husband and me in discussion of like, okay, but what does he mean? Why does he not understand it? And he makes leather sofas. Surely he must have considered this to be parts of cows. And why is it so wrong suddenly? Why does he find it? You know, first of all, trying to actually understand why he was so offended by us taking an animal that had actually fallen out of this value chain for which it was bred. And quite honestly, this very often a very horrible value chain where the animal is already, while it's still alive, treated as if it was a piece of meat. So we were taking a carcass of an animal that had clearly fallen out of this value chain and using it as a cast, quite deliberately showing some of these digressions that we are doing on a daily basis and we are condoning and we are accepting and we are, you know, hiding from direct view. So we crafted a response and I think it was one of the things that made me consider doing a PhD when that call was out because it made me realize that however much I am a practitioner and I find it super difficult to write, it's very valuable and very necessary sometimes to 
reconnect to the written word, to this body of knowledge that is out there and connect the craft back to the writing and to the research. So yes, it was super valuable. Yeah, yeah. And did Mandini, who is one of the greats of contemporary design, did he understand where you were coming from once you'd written the letter? He did, yes. He was amazing. He actually wrote me another letter, a personal one this time, handwritten, colored with color pencil behind it, having lots of scribbles drawn all over it. And it read, Dear Julia, I think I now understand and sense what you want to say and good luck and everything. And then we, we met in Milan the year after, or half a year after, and he sent me one of his sculptures, a numbered bronze. He, he kind of said, I want to send you something, give me your address. And then he sent me this chair on a pedestal. It's almost like a pyramid. And the chair is almost like a trophy of design or something. Yeah. And I felt this very deep connection when we met. We really shook hands with both hands. I mean, it, it was really... It became a very, very important, powerful moment of growing up, suddenly being confronted with one of these gatekeepers of the design world, one of these old masters who really connected so much intellectual thought and made it into objects and translated it and really, you know, markedly shaped the field of design to have him consider you as part of this field. And first of all, kind of really being so affronted by your work and then reconsidering it. Was it an easy decision to move away from creating you know, these kind of gallery products that you had been making? I mean, you could have made variations on that theme for years and been a staple of the gallery circuit, I guess. Well, I don't know. Is there such a thing as a gallery circuit nowadays? I don't know whether that still exists in this form. And also, I, I don't know, I, there was always this relation of my work to being researched and asking questions with it. And Sometimes these questions I would find more important than the actual object outcome. So maybe I was also not 100% suited to that. So you're always going to go back into education, in other words? Because where else could you go, I guess? Well, I don't know. Basically, with the seaweed, it required a lot of research in finding out what to do with it and how to do it and so forth. And back then, it was difficult to then bring it to a gallery level, you know, to kind of make sellable objects immediately. And also, I didn't find a gallery that would support that kind of work in its necessary long developmental process. So it was more that I went into this PhD to give the seaweed and this development the time it needed. And yes, so I guess I guess that was the decision. It was not that I turned my back. I was still kind of sometimes selling a cow bench or so forth, but it was more that I stuck with the project and tried to find out what it needs. And it needed a lot of time that I thought I'd find in this design research field more than anywhere else, I guess. What is the future for you and for seaweed, I wonder? Good question. I mean, I really enjoy teaching and, for example, chemistry and these kind of fields. That's one of the reasons why I came to Alto University, because there are all these different departments under one roof. And there is a lot of knowledge in chemistry, for example, around bioproducts and these kind of things. I'm writing and thinking about design as a regenerative practice. So thinking how we can consciously look at some of the humanly created imbalances and try to use design to conceive of ways of rebalancing these ecosystems. So that has taken a lot of my intellectual interest. We, for example, curated an exhibition at the Design Museum here in Helsinki last year, um, Gillian Russell, Pierre Haikola, and me. Gillian Russell, who is now teaching in Vancouver, Pierre Haikola, who is in Melbourne at RMIT, and me here at Alto. And it was around um, the ocean called Critical Tide, but it was around critical engagement with the ocean and in which ways we as designers can act as agents for change. So in a way, that is very interesting for me. And I think that's as much my interest as in making structures, making objects, actually doing the work is thinking about what that means and how I could translate this into frames of teaching, into frames of, you know, into into lectures, into inspiring other people to try and create this change as well. So I'm not sure what the future will bring. I'm, my professorship here is for another three years and then I'll see where I will go afterwards. Well, I'm sure whatever the future brings, it will be absolutely fascinating. Julia, I've taken up loads of your time. Thank you so, so much. Yes, Grant, this was a real pleasure. This was like sitting in a pub.
with a pint of beer. <laughs> That's a general idea. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad you yes. enjoyed it. I also enjoyed listening to a lot of these podcasts you've been making. So thank you very much. Thank you. No, that's a pleasure. Thank (laughs) you. And um, well, hopefully I'll see you soon. Okay, great. See you soon. Bye. To discover more about Julia's work, go to julialoman.co.uk. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And guess what? I have a new website. You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. If you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.